the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon, Northern California. Welcome. Just about five minutes after the hour of 5 p.m. as we welcome you to another edition of Lifeline. Keeping you company Monday through Friday at this time, as we typically do, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. Pleasant good afternoon. He's here to say that here on this Tuesday edition of Lifeline from KFAX. How are you? Great to have you with us today as we are here, and hopefully you are, every day, Monday through Friday from 5 until 7 p.m., addressing issues that impact your life and your world. Got a pretty jam-packed program for you today. A little bit later on, we're going to have the privilege of meeting the author of, well, you remember the movie, War Room, what was based on a book. We have not just the author of War Room, but the latest book, a new film of the same title, soon to be released theaters on Friday, called Overcomer. Best-selling author, novelist Chris Fabry will join us. That'll be a little bit later on in the first hour. Second hour tonight, a new report is in. It's not encouraging. If you looked at your calendar, we're well into August. That means fire season in California soon upon us, typically September, October. And um, the most recent research into the devastating wildfires of 2017-2018 have brought about, I think, some very key insights that we here in California need to be very aware of. And it is the battle between prevention versus containment. And so far, our efforts have always been focused on containment, largely because prevention means getting rid of old-growth trees. It means dealing with a number of issues related to fire or forest management that largely environmentalists in California just can't handle. Well, we've got an important decision to make, and it may very well determine the economic future and the safety of your family and many families and communities here in California. Lawrence McQuillan, Senior Fellow and Director of the Center on Entrepreneurial Innovation at the Independent Institute will join us. He's written a new report called California Wildfires, Key Recommendations to Prevent Future Disasters. That's coming up tonight in our number two. I want to talk about community for a moment. You know, the one thing that we've sort of addressed here in recent weeks, in the wake of these ongoing tragic shootings, it's always interesting to take note that the perpetrators of these events usually turn out to be loners, disconnected from society. I mean, you knew they weren't church-going folk, right? But we also know that they are people that are largely disconnected from any sense of, of community, no community support. 
So if they go through difficult times, if they're facing a, a breakup or a financial crisis or a health crisis, whatever it might be, there's largely no one around close enough that can help guide them and that they can lean on. And so oftentimes they're venting their, their outlet, so to speak, is to turn violent. But community can be a very powerful thing, and if there's a strong sense of community, it can make a huge difference there. Well, my first guest tonight has written a new blog post on the the greater benefits of community that deals with a story that has nothing to do with gun violence, although there is a violent component to it, the story of a United States Air Force pilot that was shot down early on in the Vietnam War, and his remains were finally recovered and brought back home. And the story of what happened is truly amazing. And Dr. Jim Dennison joins us. He is CEO and founder of Dennison Ministries. His daily commentary and email podcast reached some 160,000 subscribers globally. He's the author of a number of best-selling books, has taught on the philosophy of religion and apologetics at a number of seminaries, and senior fellow with the 21st Century Wilberforce Initiative, and serves as senior fellow for global studies at Dallas Baptist University's Institute for Global Engagement. Dr. Dennison, great to have you with us. So glad to be with you today, Craig. How are you? I'm good, thanks. And uh, this this is a heartwarming story. I mean, it's it's heartbreaking when you think about the sacrifice that many American families go through during times of war, not only times of separation, but then either a soldier coming back wounded, a soldier coming back with post-traumatic stress disorder, or worse yet, a soldier never coming back. But you you write in this new post a, um, a heartwarming story of a soldier who finally, after many, many years, came back. And what unfolds in an event that was largely very unplanned at Dallas's Love Field Airport is is truly, I think, uh, an opportunity to not only celebrate community, but a, a glimmer of hope, I think, for the future of, uh, of humanity. Tell us a bit about the story of Roy Knight, Jr. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to do that. Actually happened a lot of it in my own backyard. I'm here in Dallas. I have flown out of Love Field. I have no idea how many times over the years. that I really wish I'd been there when all of this transpired. So the story, as you say, goes back to 1967 when a colonel in the United States Air Force who had been decorated on a variety of levels uh, is recalled into the Vietnam War. Roy A. Knight Jr. is his name. He shot down on May 19, 1967. His five-year-old son was at Dallas Love Field to bid, to bid him goodbye as he was leaving Dallas to return back to war the last time his son saw his father alive. His father was killed in action in 1967. Recently, his remains were identified, and they were flown back to Dallas on a Southwest Airlines plane. That five-year-old son, Brian Knight, is now a captain with Southwest Airlines, and he flew the plane that brought his father's remains back home. Wow. I mean, that, that, that sounds to me, knowing the way these things typically work, uh, the layers of bureaucracy that is involved are, are so complicated that even the likelihood of this coming together under those circumstances is, is, is practically an impossibility. 
it's astounding. It truly is. And Southwest Airlines had a great deal to do with this in organizing this, making certain that Captain Brian Knight was the pilot for that plane. They arranged all of this out of Oakland to bring them back. And the way the story goes here on the Dallas side of it, as the plane is coming in for landing, there's an announcement that comes over the public address system at uh, Dallas Love Field, stating the pilot of the plane bringing Colonel Knight home is his son. First they state Colonel Knight is coming home to Dallas. Then they state that the pilot is his son. A Southwest Airlines gate agent starts handing out flags to individuals who are standing there at Love Field. The plane lands. It's given a salute with water cannons. The plane taxis to the uh, jetway, and then a color guard arrives. And watching out the windows of the jetway out of the, uh, out of the airport, the family and the friends are gathered to watch as the casket is escorted, the flag-draped casket is escorted from the plane into the airport, with the family watching and the friends watching. And then the captain of the plane disembarks and escorts his father's remains into the airport. Wow, uh, that's chilling just to hear you describe it. It's an astounding scene. It truly is. There happened to be a reporter there, an uh, individual uh, named uh, Prosco, who was uh, there. He was actually flying from El Paso through Dallas to New York. He'd been covering the horrific massacre in El Paso and happened to be in Dallas Left Field, Jackson Proskow by name. He's the person that began telling the story. He started taking pictures, began tweeting about this, and that's how the story went viral. That's how I found out about it, was through a Twitter feed as this was happening uh, in real time. And I began following the story and then wrote about it, of course, in my blog as a result of all of that. But it truly was one of those remarkable examples of community as uh, the reporter uh, Jackson Proskow tells the story. The entire airport, the part of it that was near this, that watched what was happening, just fell into absolute silence. Everybody stopped. Everybody stopped where they were going, what they were doing. They watched, they stood, they um, were part of one community, welcoming Colonel Knight home to Dallas on behalf of a grateful community and a grateful country. Now, you know, I could say, well, God bless the great state of Texas. You know, that's the Texan way of doing things. But this is a big airport, and these things don't happen spontaneously at airports. We've all been through airports. We know that they are a cacophony of of noise and people rushing here and there, and I've got a plane to catch, I've got luggage to pick up, I've got a connection to make, whatever the case may be, Um, to, to literally fall silent to the port to the point where virtually you could almost hear a pin drop at an airport in the United States is is just it, it just seems to be a virtual impossibility it really does i can't imagine in all the flying i've done over all these decades ever having an experience like this I wouldn't have imagined it would be possible. As you're saying, if you were to pick all the places where something like this could happen, you'd put the airport at the bottom of the list of possibilities with, as you know, passengers rushing to get to planes or rushing to get to destinations and all that's in all of that and the luggage that's being dragged around and all the PA's announcements and just all the, the chaos of an airport. And it completely fell silent. And they became a community gathered as one. An amazing tribute to, uh, you know, we we so often hear stories from veterans of that era about how badly they were mistreated on their return home. It wasn't a popular war for a lot of reasons. Um, unfortunately, the, the lack of popularity, so to speak, of that war uh, was brought home to bear on the returning vets. And many of those vets received, uh, not only didn't receive any honors, but were virtually spat upon, and sometimes literally spat upon when they returned back to the United States. 
And to hear a story like this, that 52 years after having been shot down in May of 1967, to have the body of Roy Knight Jr. repatriated to the United States, delivered to his son, and his son to be flying the plane that delivered his body back to Dallas's Love Field is absolutely incredible. Dr. Jim Dennison is with us today. We're talking about this amazing story that unfolded here recently in Dallas, Texas, and it's a, it's an encouraging and heartwarming story. We'll talk more about this experience with Dr. Jim Dennison as our Tuesday edition of Lifeline continues. But first, we're going to get a look at some traffic, and then we're going to swing over to the KFAX Traffic Center to see what's going on over there. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. This is one of those stories that just keeps on giving, not just the story of what occurred at Love Field recently in Dallas, where uh, the remains of a Air Force pilot shot down in May of 1967 were finally repatriated back home and back to his family. Um, but a story of um, just amazing sense of, of community, as Dr. Jim Dennison has detailed. By the way, you can read his posting, uh, denisonforum.org. That's Denison, D-E-N-I-S-O-N, denisonforum.org. Uh, when this came to your attention, when this event came to your attention, um, what information do you know of, uh, Dr. Dennison, in terms of uh, just the simple news of um, Air Force pilot Roy Knight Jr. being located. I mean, uh, 52 years later is virtually unheard of. It really is. This was part of a larger process that we've all been reading about over the years where remains of POWs and MIAs are being re- are being located and repatriated. In this particular area, as I understand it, there have been a number of survey attempts over the years believing that there had been remains there, but that uh, Colonel Knight's remains were so deeply uh, embedded in the jungle, as I understand it, that they just simply weren't visible before. And sometimes there's erosion that occurs or weather events or things that occur in the geography there that is such that they're able to see things they couldn't see before. And it's in that process that they were able to find his remains. And as I understand it, they use DNA testing to be able to identify uh, his specific uh, identity, of course, and be able to notify the family on that basis. Uh, the five-year-old son who flew him back is the youngest of his children. His oldest, at his namesake, actually was the first speaker at his memorial service which Mm. happened a few days later in Weatherford, just west of Fort Worth. Uh, It was a a service that was carried by uh, local media here, just a remarkable continued event of a family that had lost him, had no idea that they would ever be able to bury his remains and give him the kind of proper send-off and the proper memorial that he deserved. Wow, an amazing homecoming. From your perspective, looking at this, in, in terms of sort of the the the, the sense of uh, you know we, we've we've seen so many displays of man's inhumanity toward man, and uh, and uh, our our uh, sense of uh, how should I say the 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 exercise of that uh, uh, first generation sin nature uh, in all of us uh, to see an example where just the opposite happens that the 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 capacity for good. Uh, really comes out and is displayed in a large way and without a lot of orchestration here. I mean, again, as you've outlined, this seems to be very spontaneous at multiple levels in terms of the reaction of the folks 
that day at Dallas Love Field. Just give me your your sense here, uh, Dr. Dennison, in terms of, of what does this mean for you as, as someone who has a background in the philosophy of religion and apologetics and, and the bigger picture here, the bigger lessons that all of us can learn? No, thank you very much. There's a sociologist from Boston named Peter Berger who some years ago articulated what he called five signals of transcendence. He considered these to be events and and experiences that we have that point to something beyond ourselves. He says that order is a signal of transcendence. When we see order and we long for order, that shows that there's a higher order that we experience. He says the same of hope and play, humor and damnation are actually his five signals of transcendence. I would add community as a sixth. I would suggest that God created us for himself and for each other. Part of the reason the two great commands are to love God and to love our neighbor is that we were created to love God and love our neighbor. There's something in us that yearns for the kind of community that was expressed at Love Field. There's something in us that's a God-shaped, I think, signal of transcendence, a God-shaped emptiness that can only be filled by the Lord and by neighbor, and that's by loving God and loving each other is the ultimate purpose of life. So I think we saw a signal of transcendence, as it were, a love field. We saw something that God created us for and saw a yearning that can only ultimately be met when we're loving God and each other the way that the Lord calls us to do so. It's sad that uh, the capacity of mankind to show this kind of of love seems to... um um, seems to only come out, at least under most recent circumstances, when there's been some sort of a tragedy that we're reacting to. Um, for example, the way the community came together in El Paso on the heels of these horrific shootings. And, and it's good to see that happen. But you wonder to yourself, gee, if there was a greater sense of community leading into and prior to these sorts of events, if the perpetrators of these events had a greater sense of community and connectedness, would would these sorts of things ever even happen? I mean, when you think about the disconnection of the nuclear family, for example, over the last several generations, the divorce rate in America, the fact that families are very mobile, where back 40, 50 years ago it wasn't unusual for multiple generations, if they didn't live together in the same house, certainly lived in the same block, or if not at the very least in the same community, much of that is now disconnected as well. Do you, do you think largely a a lot of this disconnectedness and lack of fostering of community is being contributory to the way we see certain people act out in a violent fashion today? There's no question about it. There's an existentialist kind of philosophy, as you know, that has especially taken root in America in the last 50 or 60 years. Part of it says there's no such thing as truth, or just your truth and my truth. Well, if that's true, then there can be no absolute authority, there can be no absolute truth, there can be no north on the compass, and we're all left to our own devices. We're seeing this breakdown in marriage, we're seeing it in family, we're seeing in the sanctity of life, from conception to natural death. We're seeing it across the board. There's been a lot of sociology around mass shootings. There was a group that recently uh, made public some studies. They've done the mass shootings going back to the 1960s, in which they discovered that almost without exception, these shooters had gone through a time of great crisis in their lives and had no community. As you were saying earlier, they had no one to reach out to. They had no one that they could trust with their hurt, with their pain. They had typically been through abuse as children. Then they came to some tipping point as adults, and they had no place to go with it. There was no family. There was no nuclear family, no extended community, no one loving them as neighbor. And with that breakdown of society that we've seen over recent decades, we're watching the manifestations and the symptoms of that, which is why a story like this so speaks to our hearts. Yeah, when you see that degree of, of disconnectedness, uh, how often, it, almost to to uh, exclusion 
in every one of these cases, do you find the description of a loner, an individual that was disconnected, disenfranchised? Um, you know, rarely do you ever hear, you know, known and beloved by everyone in town, great friend to, you know, <laughs> all of his neighbors. You never, you never hear those things. Those descriptions yeah. never accompany uh, a report on somebody who is responsible for these kinds of um, acts of mass violence. Sin is always so isolating, isn't it? You think about Cain and Abel, of course, as an isolated event. Cain and Abel are off in the distance by themselves away from their family. You think about the prodigal son who goes off to the far country and leaves his father and his brother and all that he knows. Satan loves to isolate because it's kind of like that old Aesop's fable, you know, where the wolves try to get to the calves, but they can't get past the uh, the adults to get to the young, and so they start circling uh, rumors and gossip and, and uh, innuendo, and pretty soon there's such division that the uh, the herd breaks up, and then the calves are easy prey for the wolves that are seeking to attack them. Satan loves to attack from within. Ananias and Sapphira to today. He loves to divide because he knows that when we're divided, we're grieving the heart of the Father that loves all his children. We're not praying for each other. We're not praying with each other. We're not bearing one another's burdens and so fulfilling the law of Christ. And when we're not the unity of family and faith that God intended, then we're easy prey for the enemy. If you take the coal out of the fire, it goes out. If you keep it connected to the other calls, it stays lit. And we always seem to have the sense that, well, this is the responsibility of uh, mental health experts, responsibility of the police and other authorities. Uh, But I wonder how much of of the responsibility uh, lies at the feet of the greater community who saw something and did nothing, never took the time to try and engage with people that you see that are clearly you know, not not part of the team, so to speak, that are that are clearly disenfranchised or disconnected. I wonder how much how much of a difference could be made if we just took the time to uh, uh, to carry the burdens of our neighbor. Absolutely, and that's where Christians can set the example. Unfortunately, a lot of us uh, bear as much blame as even those in the secular world, not knowing even the names of our neighbors not knowing their stories, not building relationships. We're in a cocoon society, as has been said. If you think back to the 50s and 60s, how many cars, how many homes were built with porches? Who has porches today? People used to sit out on the porch and watch the neighbors go by and build relationships. I'm old enough at 61 to remember block parties. I'm old enough to remember community birthday parties, to remember a day when everybody knew each other. And if somebody was going through a death or a loss and people just kind of gathered around them. These days, even in churches, we tend to be so fragmented and our relationships tend to be digital rather than than physical. And we've replaced social media for real connectedness. And as a result, we're lonelier than ever. Loneliness is an absolute epidemic in America. The studies make that clear. And that's where Christianity can make the difference. Dr. Jim Dennison, author of this new blog post that uh, talks about what transpired recently at Dallas's Love Field. You can find it at denisonforum.org. That's denisonforum.org. Dr. Jim Dennison, CEO and founder of Denison Ministries, also senior fellow with the 21st Century Wilberforce Initiative and senior fellow for global studies at Dallas Baptist University's Institute for Global Engagement. Dr. Jim Dennison, thanks for the time and the insights. 5.30 from KFAX. Let's get you some traffic. We'll do that right now as we swing over to the KFAX Traffic Center. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Well, I almost fear that ad just let the cat out of the bag in a serendipitous fashion. Hey, are you a fan of War Room? 
I got to tell you, after I saw that movie, I thought, you know, I'm going to build me one of those. (laughs) I need one of those in my house. Uh, That was an amazing, heartwarming story. Uh, And if for some reason you happen to be visiting another planet when War Room was released, I hope you'll make an effort to go uh, get a copy of the DVD and see it. Uh, Once you've seen that, or if you've seen that, uh, then you'll certainly know that this new film that uh, just got referenced a moment ago um, is is equally as compelling. It's called Overcomer, and uh, serendipitously so, we have its author. Uh, Both films, War Room and Overcomer, come from novels by best-selling author, and uh, this is a guy who's an award-winning Radio talk show host. He's got over seventy published works uh, to his um, to his credit, including his most recent book, Overcomer. And Chris Fabry, great to have you on the show. Hey, Craig, um, uh, you broke up there, but happy National Radio Day, and thanks for having me on. Happy National Radio Day. <laughs> I forgot that that was today. Yes, absolutely. Happy National Radio Day as well to a fellow radio broadcaster, and thank you for taking some time to be with us. Uh, it, it has to be, uh, first off, Chris, absolutely overwhelming for an author to see their baby, their hard work, their months and months, maybe years worth of toiling over a, well, I was going to say typewriter, probably today a computer, uh, to produce a book and then see it wind up on the big screen. There's got to be an enormous sense of satisfaction in that. It really is. And when you see, you know, when you see up there what it, you know, you put on the page, actually what I did was the Kendricks came to me with War Room they had the idea, they had the, the screenplay, and they said, could you make this into a novel? Now, I have written books that have been made into films, but this started with their screenplay. It started, uh, let's go back to War Room. It started with this you know, older woman, Miss Clara, who, <laughs> who had a, a war room, you know, a place where she went to pray. And they said, could you make this into a, a novel, three or four hundred page novel? And I thought it would be a really non-creative thing to do, you know, to, they've already had the idea. But what I found was that I had so much creativity. They put up the fence post. They made all the hard decisions for me about everything that has to happen. All I had to do was get in the middle of the pasture and play around and ask questions. For example, why is this old woman living in this old two-story house? She's going to fall down those stairs one of these days. Why is she there? And so I get to go into, you know, the history of her marriage with her husband that, as the film opens that she's lost. And I did the same thing now with Overcomer. They came up with the idea. I was on a phone call with Alex Kendrick where he basically just, non-emotionally went through every shot in the film. The film starts off with this. We have a drone shot that you go into this gymnasium and you come down. It's all one shot, you know, and he's telling this happens and then this happens. And what that character doesn't know is that over here is this person and this interconnects with this. And by the time he got to the end of explaining what Overcomer was about, number one, I knew I got to write that book. (laughs) I got to write that story. Number two, I thought they've they've stayed in their lane. You know, they're not trying to do Superman or or any kind of Super Avengers or anything like that. They're just telling a really small story, and there's something powerful about that. In some way that you can go deep with a very small story with people's lives, uh, and I think that the answer to you know why is that so powerful is you see yourself. 
when you go into the, when you watch this film, you think, oh, it's about the coach, or oh, it's about the young girl who's got asthma and she's 15, she's trying to run cross country. You get to the end of the film, it's like, no, this is about me. This, uh, they're they're telling my story up there in some way, shape, or form. Well, and I guess at the end of the day, there's nothing that makes a book or a movie more come to life than to sit in the theater or uh, relax with a cup of coffee or whatever your poison is and, and read a book and be able to see the characters jump off the pages or off the screen and find that level of relatability where suddenly the characters are people that you find either uh, – likable or maybe very well knowable, meaning that they seem to be people that you know, if not finding yourself inside of that film, and the ability then to, I think, apply what you learn, what the takeaway is from that film to your own life can be very powerful. And it's the same thing, you know, a lot of people say, well, you, you, you just tell stories, you know, just, uh, you just tell fictional stories, you're making stuff up. Well, I go back to what King David, how he was confronted with his sin by the prophet. The prophet has this really hard job of, of telling David, you know, you've you done wrong. How's he going to do that? And he tells them this, this story about the little lamb, about the poor man, about the rich man. And David is just filled with injustice, and he cannot believe, you know, you could just see him, this former shepherd who... who was so incensed by that story, and when Nathan says, you are the man, it is a kind way of God coming around the back door of David's heart, knocking and saying, hey, you're looking at yourself here, fella. You need to repent. You need to turn from that sin and, and turn to me. And in a lot of ways, that's what every good story will do. It will show you yourself and knock on the, the back door of your heart. At least that's what we try to do. Well, and can't you agree, and I think you will, uh, Chris, that, that the, the, the greatest communicator that ever lived knew how to effectively use storytelling to draw his audience in and to bring about important key lessons, and that was Jesus himself. So if it worked for him, <laughs> I think yeah, there's something yeah. to this formula, isn't there? Well, there is, and and Jim Dennison was just talking about you know the prodigal. There was a there was a man, you know, there was a, a son who wanted his inheritance, and he goes away, and everybody knows, oh, you know, this is a this is a bad kid, and here's the kid who stayed, you know, by here was the good one, the obedient one, and what what is the one? Which one gets the party? It's the one who comes to himself. And I think in every situation you have with the stories that I, uh, I resonate with, you know, the, the novel that I first read that really awakened me to the power of storytelling was To Kill a Mockingbird. And to be able to read that story and to see that injustice and to look at that through the eyes of the little girl of Scout, you know, who is standing on Boo Radley's porch, you know, it's just like, wow, this, is, this can really be used... To, to open your eyes to so many things, but not in a way that bangs you over the head, because at the end of the prodigal story, you know, you see some really hard truth about the love of the Father as well as the, the sins of the sons and who's forgiven and who's not. 
so, I, yeah, I agree. It can be used as a real powerful tool. Now, let's talk briefly, and, you know, I always hate to uh, go too deep with a novelist or a, a film producer or actor because we don't want to give the, the plot line entirely away. Thank you. Uh, Thank but this, but this, this new, your new novel, and, of course, the film itself, uh, opening at theaters this coming Friday, uh, tell us, to just give us sort of the thumbnail sketch, if you would, Chris, uh, of of the the background that we learn about Coach John Harrison and his experiences and what that ultimately communicates to the viewer and the reader. John Harrison's this guy who's a coach and he's driven and he wants to win a championship and his son's on the basketball team and they're having this uh, game of their life, you know, when the story first starts. And because of some stuff that's going on in town, the major manufacturer pulls out. A lot of the sports are gone. A lot of the kids are gone. And he just sees everything implode. Everything that he had based his life on success in sports. You know, he's got a wife and family, and he's a dutiful dad, and he's a Christian, you know, and he goes to church. But everything that he really based his life on, his identity, is wrapped up in success. Can I win a state championship? The, one of the other major characters in this story is a little 15-year-old girl who has asthma, who runs, and she goes out to the cross-country team. They tap John Harrison, who does not even think cross-country is a sport, and you see what her identity is wrapped up in, and it's not anything good. Uh, I've talked a lot with the Kendricks about, you know, why did you choose this scenario of, you know, what's going on with Hannah? And they gave me a really good uh, idea about that. This is why when people are dealing with identity issues at this age, they go one of three different areas, and she goes one of those ways, and I won't tell you. (laughs) But she's wrapped up. You know, she's just, everything is wrapped up in her life, and she's had a lot of loss. Her parents, she's lost her parents. She's living with her grandmother. John is uh, goes to the hospital, and he just happens to fall into this room of this fella who is is basically on his deathbed, but who strikes up a friendship with John and who calls something, it touches a nerve deep inside of him. And the, the interaction between John and this man who is helpless, you know, he's in a bed, he can't do anything, he doesn't have any worth in the world's eyes, and his identity, you know, where is that? When you're going to walk out of this film, and you're going to, you're going to, I'm starting to choke up just thinking about it. You're going to walk out of this film, and you're going to have the same kinds of questions. What do I base my identity on? Is it on something that somebody else thinks about me? Is it what I think about myself, what I can prove to myself? Or, or is it who God says I am? What God says, am I going to believe what God says about me? And when you get to that point of just even asking the question, whether you've been a Christian for a long time or you're outside Christianity looking in, you're going to get a really good picture of this identity thing and how you can be changed from the inside out. Wow, powerful stuff. So this this is a film that not only engages and entertains, but, but really drives home a message. And, and I love a film where you can walk out Get a sense of, of energy from it um, and and uh, joy, and at the same token, make you think. 
And this is a film that in a very positive way will make you think. Overcomer, it's opening at theaters beginning Friday, August the 23rd. And uh, you can go online to overcomerthemovie.com to find out precisely where. That's overcomerthemovie.com. This is the second in the series, collaboration between author Chris Fabry and um, the the, uh, Kendrick brothers, uh, whom, as we mentioned earlier on, um, produced War Room. And uh, this is really good family entertainment, and the kind of stuff, as I said before, that it will make you think. Overcomer, opening in theaters across California and the U.S. on Friday, August the 23rd. Details on the web at overcomerthemovie.com. That's overcomerthemovie.com. And Chris Fabry, thank you so much for being with us today and uh, sharing a bit of your insight and and background into this film. Sounds like it's going to be a, a real enjoyable time at the theater. I think so, Craig. Thanks for having me on. Have a great day. You bet. Take care now. And uh, there is, of course, best-selling author and a radio talk show host. He's got a program on Moody, Chris Fabry. Overcomerthemovie.com, opening in theaters Friday, August the 23rd. 5.45. That means time for me to step aside. We're going to turn the microphone over to the folks at the KFAX Traffic Center to tell you what's going on on your Tuesday ride home. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, we're back, 549, and we continue on here, the Tuesday edition of Lifeline. Let's get an update. We're going to swing over to um, Brad Dake, is the founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute. Tell us a bit about a story that we've been following for some time now. And it's it's a troubling one at, at multiple levels, not only because there seems to be a little bit of over-aggressiveness by uh, police authorities, uh, which um, sadly, uh, there's a trend here, as we've, as we've seen in recent years. Um, but also, <laughs> what appears to be uh, a, a just a, a pretty significant agenda taking place uh, in cooperation with public tax dollars through the public library uh, to uh, to promote uh, gender dysphoria and things of this sort uh, in a fashion that, quite frankly, just doesn't make any sense. Now, uh, to give you some background here, this occurred in Spokane, Washington, where a local pastor there uh, went to a public library um, over Father's Day weekend to an observe an event that was publicized as Drag Queen Story Hour. <laughs> you think this is a bit off of Saturday Night Live. Those that are really older in the audience can see Percy Dove tonsils from the Ernie Kovacs show doing this. You're old enough to remember who Percy, the character Percy Dovetonsils was on the Ernie Kovacs show. Then you've, you've got the same image in mind that I have. Well, here we have Drag Queen Story Hour, and this local pastor goes to see what's going on. He's not there to protest anything of that sort, uh, but that wasn't the way he was treated by the local police authorities. Let's get an update now. Brad Dacus, um, I've covered some of the highlights, but for folks that uh, have not been following this story with us, uh, fill in some of the blanks, if you would, please. Yeah, certainly. Um, the library had uh, announced publicly that there was going to be this drag queen story hour. The entire you know, community was invited to come, uh, bring your children. And this pastor saw this, Pastor Yatton, and uh, he uh, said, God, well, I want to see what's going on here. 
and some other people showed up as well. And he was he was not a demonstrator. He wasn't didn't have any signs. Um, and uh, the uh, he went to go in the, into the library, and the police said, uh, said, "Excuse me, are you are you supportive of the drag queens and what they're doing?" He says, "Well, no, but I want to observe what they're doing." I mean, you know, he said, well, he said, "Well, then you're not you're not allowed to to be here." Uh, you have to go on the other side of the street. Wait a minute. So they're only going to let him in if he was there to be supportive. But if not, or if just, I don't know, he's a taxpayer, uh, this is taking place on public property that he helped pay for. Uh, I want to know what's going on here. He also happens to be a community leader. You you would think that there would be a little bit of a reasonableness by the authorities to, to recognize that he had perfectly every good right to be there. You're, you're absolutely right. He did. And, and the reason and the only reason that he was not allowed to enter that library and observe this drag queen story hour was because of his beliefs. And that's the real problem here, Craig. Well, how do they know? Let me interrupt the counselor. How do they know what his beliefs are? He just walked in and said, hey, I want to observe this. How do they even know what his beliefs are? Well, they they wanted to see if he was supportive. So they asked him, and he was honest. He says, says, do you support the drag queens and what they're doing? He says, no, I, I don't, but I want to watch and see what they're doing. I want to observe. And and he, as long as he wasn't creating a disturbance, as long as he wasn't, you know, already screaming and yelling at people or have a big sign with creating a disruption or something like that where he already shown that he's going to create a ruckus, but that wasn't the case. He was very mild-mannered, you know, easygoing guy, wants to go in and wants to watch it, um, observe what's taking place, and he was uh, going to probably be praying quietly, silently in his own mind to the Lord uh, for these kids. But um, creating no disturbance whatsoever, had no intention to, there was no reasonable, rational basis for them to think that he was going to create a disturbance, and yet, when he refused to, to leave, he says, they asked him to leave, he says, no, I'm, I'm going to stay here, this is my constitutional right to be here, you, you cannot force me to go to the other side of the street just because of what I believe. And they said, well, then we're arresting you for creating a disturbance, and uh, put him in a squad car for over three hours. He had to sit in this hot squad car, like a little mini jail. And then after that, after that, then they drove him down and booked him in the local jail. And now we're representing him. We just filed a motion. Our attorney there, Jorge Ramos, uh, in a heads up our, our Washington State office there, uh, he uh, went ahead and filed a motion uh, to have this matter um, you know, dismissed. And uh, the, the hearing uh, for this uh, motion to dismiss is scheduled for August the 29th at 9 a.m. So uh, the Spokane Municipal Court, so people can mark their calendars and be praying for uh, the pastor at that time, because if he's convicted, he has up to uh, one year behind bars. Um, and this is just, this is something we've got to bring a halt to. Um, one year behind bars face, based on... Put on the back of the bus or the back of a police squad car, even worse. Now, now, now help me understand here, because I've got to be missing some detail. One year behind bars for for committing what crime? Uh, disturbing the peace and, um, and, and uh, vigorously, allegedly vigorously uh, contesting... Uh, oh, no, not, that, that was, that's what he was saying. Um, but... Uh, but yeah, disturbing the peace. Disturbing and the peace. You got a crowd gathered, and, and you got a drag queen doing a story outer, and that's that's not disturbing the peace enough already. What? Yeah, exactly. And and you know what? What's also interesting is what just happened. Just even since then, since this 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 matter happened, uh, there was another event. It's called uh, uh, the Teen Pride 
uh, week at a library in Renton, Washington, near right near Seattle. And there we had two women, uh, two old, you know, grandmas. They wanted to come in and observe, and you know, they had their hand, their, their, they were, you know, they're observing. They, they weren't cheering. They're observing, and uh, some somehow they, they were. The police came over and says, uh, "Excuse me, are you are you supportive of this?" They said, "No, but we're just here to observe. We're not going to, you know, say anything." They said, "Well, you have to leave," and uh, and they said, and so they were ordered to leave, and now we're uh, also dealing with them. And that event was even worse because instead of just having a little story for children, they actually had two individuals um, dramatizing and simulating acts that I cannot discuss here on the radio. Um, it's it was outrageous and uh, it, it just outrageous. Uh, what and this was taxpayer-funded public library. It's, and that this was in Renton. The first thing we talked about is uh, in Spokane, and this is a trend we're seeing across the country to uh, numb our children and our communities uh, to what they are advocating. And I, I don't say hate these people, by the way, Craig. These these uh, transgenders they think they're doing they're not transgender these uh, drag queens think they're doing their cause justice. Um, they need prayer. They need love. Um, they need to be reached out to. But we, we've got to be careful to, to not confuse that with being with not protecting uh, our children and our communities uh, and uh, the the ramifications of what they're uh, advocating and influencing. Here we thought all of this craziness was just limited to California, but apparently not. It must be spreading north. Oh, yes. It is definite. In fact, our office there in Seattle, I just talked to our chief counsel today. He said it is now uh, totally uh, overwhelmed with cases, uh, along with the office in in Oregon. Wow. All right. Well, uh, we appreciate you uh, not only updating us on this case as it moves forward. Uh, There's obviously, you know, from a First Amendment standpoint, a concern to a lot of folks. And um, certainly seems to be another demonstration of overreach by police authorities in a very odd fashion. Uh, And welcome to the world in which we live. Brad Dacus, constitutional lawyer, the founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute. We appreciate your time, sir. Thank you so much for the update. Okay. Thank you. That puts us at uh, just a skosh before... Six o'clock. Don't ask me how much your scotia is. My grandmother used to say that she would be baking. So we're just a little scotia this, a little scotia that. So you can kind of, yeah. <laughs> yeah, just you can define it for yourself, whatever you think it means. I know what it means. It means we've got to look at traffic, a look at some headline news, and uh, then we come back. We're going to look at what's going on in the fire season, which is quickly upon us here in California, and what we can do to better think through how California deals with these crises. Lifeline continues. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.